0: paramilitary camps, and arms smuggling. Farah investigations and prosecutions after 1938, and cases targeting the influence of the Dominican Republic through 1958, Seem like a drop in the bucket when contrasted against the violations of U.S. law inherent in the arms smuggling activities of the Jewish Agency and Haganah, and the violence of paramilitary groups associated with the Irgun. These secret activities involving foreign agents and principals are still only gradually coming to light in end of career disclosures by individuals who were directly involved and a trickle of document releases by U.S. intelligence agencies. One dossier released by the CIA in 2005 titled, The Objectives and Activities of the Leumi," attempted to summarize the objectives, activities, and reach of the organization. It read, The Leumi is an underground quasi-military organization with headquarters in Palestine and branches in Poland and other European countries. Its members are fanatical Zionists who wish to convert Palestine and Transjordan into an independent Jewish state and who advocate the use of force against both the Arabs and the British to achieve this maximal political goal. In the past, Ergun was responsible for organizing illegal Jewish immigration into Palestine. It has conducted, since February of this year, periodic raids on government buildings as a protest against the British white paper policy. Irgun activities have been condemned by the rest of the Palestine Jewish community as irresponsible, misguided, and harmful to the Zionist cause. The 1944 intelligence report detailed how Irgun was originally intended to serve as the military arm of the Revisionist Party in Palestine, but broke away. Recruits were drawn from the Revisionist Youth Movement, which provided pre-military training that Irgun could later build upon. The intelligence report noted the leadership role of Eri Jabotinsky, Vladimir Jabotinsky, 1880 to 1940, who was in charge of the Batar Immigration Department, 1938 to 1940, and force estimate of three to 4,000 members in Palestine. It also noted the Irgun's preferred use of terrorist violence and intimidation after the British imposed immigration restrictions. The intelligence report categorized another Ergun activity as more similar to that of modern-day coyotes, human smugglers who help undocumented immigrants cross the U.S.-Mexico border in exchange for money, than a rescue operation designed to transport European Jews to Palestine. It read, The Organization of Illegal Immigration proved to be a lucrative venture, since in addition to charging the prospective immigrants what the traffic would bear, Irgun representatives in the U.S. and elsewhere collected funds for the support of their humanitarian undertaking. These funds have largely been used to train and equip with arms the members of the society and to defray the costs of terrorist activities. The physical document released by the CIA with that intelligence assessment also contains a hand-scrawled note underscoring Irgun representatives in the U.S. saying, Bergson? This referred to the same Peter H. Bergson who was lobbying Congress and Truman while conducting public relations for the formation of a Jewish army in the Middle East. The report also noted that Irgun had created a protection racket in Palestine. The Jewish Front tribute that collected funds under the threat of violence if ordinary solicitation proves ineffective. Even the intelligence reports released so far belie the true scope and reach of Ergun activities in the United States. Bergson's allies stretched high into the U.S. Treasury Department, facilitating his use of State Department cables to coordinate with overseas allies. One key Ergun leader, Jabotinsky, would die peacefully in a Catskills-Betar militant training camp in New York after a long reign of terror in Palestine. Vladimir Jabotinsky was a major figure in the World Zionist Organization and put together a force of 5,000 soldiers as the organization's contribution to the British conquest of Palestine during World War I. In 1920, he organized the Haganah, the precursor to the Israeli army, and held a position in the World Zionist Organization World Executive for his leadership role. He resigned to build his own far-right-wing Zionist Revisionist World Union in 1925, which opposed World Zionist Organization President Chaim Weissman's vision. Jabotinsky's was to revise the British decision to separate Transjordan from territory allotted to become the Jewish national home after World War I in the Balfour Declaration. Jabotinsky also wanted to revise the British decision to disband the Jewish Legion. His views evolved over time towards supporting the absolute necessity of violent armed displacement of Arabs in Palestine. This was frankly encapsulated in his 1923 Iron Wall Manifesto. It read, There can be no kind of discussion of a voluntary reconciliation between us and the Arabs, any native people view their country as their national home. They will not voluntarily allow not only a new master, but even a new partner. Colonization can have only one goal. For the Palestinian Arabs, this goal is inadmissible. This is in the nature of things. To change that nature is impossible. Colonization can therefore continue and develop only under the protection of a force independent of the local population. An iron wall, which the native population cannot break through. This is, in toto, our policy toward the Arabs. To formulate it any other way would only be hypocrisy. Jabotinsky established his paramilitary Betar Youth Group in 1923 in Palestine and other countries. Menachem Begin joined in 1929 in Poland, rising to head the national unit that became Betar's largest branch. Jabotinsky's organization grew rapidly. At the 1931 World Zionist Congress, it was the third largest faction, holding 25% of the delegates. The revisionists demanded that the WZO formally call for a Jewish state on both sides of the Jordan River with a majority Jewish population. Jabotinsky's phalanx of brown-shirted Betar youth bodyguards alienated other constituencies of the World Zionist Organization in 1933. At the time, the World Zionist Organization was attempting to come to grips with the rise of Hitler. During the conference, WZO leadership met with Baron Leopold von Mildenstein of the Nazi SS in Palestine. The World Zionist Organization's Chaim Weizmann asked the Nazis for permission to go to Berlin to negotiate for the transfer and financial facilities for immigration to Palestine under a formal transfer agreement. The transfer agreement was signed between the Nazi administration and organizations representing German and Palestinian Jews in 1933. Herzl's stated vision to form a company in which a Jewish company will be the liquidating agent of the business interests of departing Jews is reflected in the transfer agreement, except that the agreement was signed under extreme coercion and threat of Nazi violence. The agreement did facilitate an orderly and legal transfer of sequestered German-Jewish wealth to Palestine, but it came at another horrible cost, The real trade-off was between strengthening immigration to Palestine and breaking highly effective grassroots international boycott movements against trade with Germany, led by such U.S. groups as the Jewish war veterans. Between 1933 and 1936, Nazi power was at its weakest trajectory, and Reich leaders sought every possible trade and financial advantage for accelerated economic recovery. The deal cemented a new level of trade between Palestine and the Third Reich. It was also a vehicle for the Reich to leverage the transfer agreement to build trade ties throughout the Middle East through bilateral treaties. These Reich precursors to free trade agreements were struck with 25 nations in the years leading up to 1939. Under the terms of the agreement, 60,000 Jews and a $100 million in assets were transferred to Palestine. But the agreement itself was so controversial and the documents so diffuse that few popular historians could comprehensively deal with it until the mid-1980s. Jabotinsky decried these official elite Zionist accommodations of the Nazis and the World Zionist Organization's simultaneous attempts to compel member organization adherence to WZO doctrine. Edwin Black, author of The Transfer Agreement, detailed the key meeting with Nazi leader Hermann Goering, 1893-1946, to 1946, to overcome the boycott. But Zionism's threatened status in Germany changed instantly following the March 25 meeting in Goering's office with Jewish leaders. It was after Kurt Blumenfeld's utterance that only the Zionists possessed the international organization capable of stopping the anti-Nazi movement that the Nazi view changed. From that moment on, the Third Reich realized it could exploit the Zionist movement against the Jews. At this same time, Zionists became convinced that they could exploit the Nazi movement for the benefit of future generations of the Jewish people, wrote Black. Jabotinsky lampooned fascists in his early writing, but ultimately sided with the rising fascist dictatorship in Italy under Benito Mussolini, 1880-1940. to 1940. By 1934, Bettar was training cadets in Italy with Mussolini's permission. Jabotinsky formed the New Zionist Organization and entirely broke with the World Zionist Organization in 1935. Italy's surprise attack and conquest of Ethiopia in 1935 inspired Betar members to adopt brown shirt uniforms similar to those of Mussolini's fascists. Jabotinsky's many followers, such as Bergson, identified with and were committed to the vision of a Jewish homeland carved out and defended by a Jewish army. The lobbyist for a Jewish army, Peter H. Bergson, born in Lithuania and raised in Palestine, was strongly influenced by revisionist Zionism while studying at Hebrew University in Jerusalem. He joined the Irgun Zwei Leomi paramilitary organization in Palestine in the 1930s which worked to smuggle 40,000 European Jews in spite of the restrictions of the British white paper. It was April of 1940 when Bergson came to the United States to meet up with Ergun Associates, already working to gain support for the Jewish army, including Vladimir Jabotinsky. Jabotinsky had arrived in March, thinking the U.S. was the only place where recruitment of a truly formidable new Jewish army might be possible. By this time, Jabotinsky's Irgun had much more blood on his hands than even the CIA would document four years later. Jabotinsky's efforts to form paramilitary training camps for deployment to Palestine also included efforts to cooperate with anti-Semitic elements in Poland. Between 1933 and 1936, Jewish immigration to Palestine had reached 164,267 or 29.9% of the population. Arab Palestinians, sensing their own eventual displacement, began revolting against Jewish immigration in 1936. The World Zionist Organization's Haganah, dominated by labor Zionists, had worked jointly with the British to quell the uprising as their settlement police. The revisionist paramilitary, which split from the Haganah in 1931, was placed under the command of Jabotinsky in December of 1936. Although they were originally committed to self-restraint, by November the Irgun forces were actively engaging in terrorism, including the use of milk can bombs that would also be deployed a decade later against the British in the King David Hotel. There were Report read, early in September, 13 Arabs were killed, supposedly in retaliation for the death of three Jews. Several Irgunists were determined to act on their own, but the Irgun command headed them off by organizing a wave of operations beginning on November 14 that resulted in 10 dead and numerous wounded. The Irgun's campaign of attacks on purely civilian targets reached its high point in the summer of 1938. On July 6, a bomb in a milk can went off in the Arab market in Haifa leaving 21 dead and 52 injured. On July 15, an electric mine in David Street in the old city of Jerusalem killed 10 and wounded 30. On July 25, another bomb in the Haifa market left 35 dead and 70 wounded. On July 26, a bomb in Jaffa's market killed 24 and injured 35. In America, Jabotinsky roamed freely for a short time. On August 2, 1940, he was examined by a doctor who suspected that he had heart trouble. Jabotinsky then made his way to a Bitar camp in Greene County in the Catskill Mountains, 130 miles north of New York City. After reviewing an honor guard, he collapsed and died. But Bergson and the remaining Irgun men fought on through press, politics, and some well-placed friends at the U.S. Department of Treasury. They formed the Committee for a Jewish Army in the fall of 1941. It was headquartered in New York with local councils in eight other cities. They not only published a monthly magazine, but staged theatrical productions and sponsored rallies. But they had sharp elbows. Jewish Army newspaper advertisements and radio broadcasts Targeted other Zionist groups when calling attention to their cause. By 1943, as the situation in Europe worsened, Bergson was working for direct rescue and evacuation operations rather than the army and immigration to Palestine. Bergson's new approach was consciously designed to avoid alienating Western governments over the Palestine question and Zionist political goals by focusing on immediate rescue. Bergson opened up a Washington office dedicated to this objective and was soon signing up honorary committee chairman, including publisher William Randolph Hearst, Herbert Hoover, and Interior Secretary Harold Ikes. He also lined up the U.S. Treasury Department after being rebuffed by the U.S. State Department. Treasury Secretary Henry Morgenthau Jr. strongly identified with Bergson's rescue efforts and sought to remove evacuation matters from the jurisdiction of the State Department. Morgenthau commissioned his own assistants, Josiah Dubois and John Pell, and Randolph Paul, to compile a report on rescue opportunities and failures, which he presented to President Roosevelt on January 16, 1944. It roundly castigated the State Department and recommended that Roosevelt remove the hands of men who are indifferent, callous, and perhaps even hostile He also threatened to launch a public relations attack on the State Department as a bastion of anti-Semitism. It was a charge, he said, that will require little more in the way of proof for this suspicion to explode into a nasty scandal. Roosevelt, not wishing to face such a scandal in an election year, issued Executive Order 9417 establishing the War Refugee Board. He named Morgenthau, Secretary of State Cordell Hull, and War Secretary Henry Stimson to head the board. John W. Pell, who as Assistant Treasury Secretary had spent much of his time working to produce evidence of State Department procrastination on refugee efforts, became director of the War Refugee Board. Josiah Dubois affirmed that the work of Bergson was effective in "...generating an atmosphere conducive to its formation. We were seeking the same goals." Earlier, Pell ordered that Bergson be allowed to utilize State Department cables to communicate with Jabotinsky and facilitated Jabotinsky's movements to Turkey. The War Refugee Board was now authorized to establish refugee absorption centers in neutral countries, but was unable to lead by example. By late July of 1944, the WRB was only able to secure infrastructure for a 1,000 refugees at Fort Ontario in Lake Oswego, New York. This number was unimpressive to other countries being lobbied to absorb refugees, and the entire effort was largely a failure. The U.S. Treasury Department was not the only agency being diverted to Israel's cause. A temporary wartime institution, the War Assets Administration, was covertly being harvested by the Haganah for arms and military gear for Palestine. The War Assets Administration was established within the Office for Emergency Management on March 25, 1946, under Executive Order 9689 by President Harry Truman. Truman also invoked the Neutrality Act on December 14, 1947, officially banning weapons shipments to either side of the Zionist-Arab conflict. The Haganah blithely ignored Truman's order. U.S. demobilization after World War II presented Haganah agents with massive opportunities to illicitly acquire a wide variety of advanced U.S. weaponry and military equipment and divert it to Palestine. War Assets Administration regulations required that all weapons be rendered inoperable and converted to scrap. But public newspaper accounts and CIA, FBI, and U.S. Customs Service incident reports soon revealed the tentacles of a massive smuggling operation encompassing the U.S., Europe, Caribbean, and Latin America, all moving illicit arms shipments to Palestine. This enormous network is detailed in Leonard Slater's tell-all tribute, The Pledge, published in 1970. It is substantiated by more recently declassified CIA reports. The Jewish agency and its foreign agents in America, some registered at the Farah office, were intimately involved. Slater's book chronicles a key meeting between Rudolf Goldschmidt Sonneborn, 1898 to 1986, Henry Montour, 1906 to 1982, of the United Jewish Appeal, David Ben of the Jewish Agency Executive, and 17 prominent Jewish American fundraisers active in finance, law, and retail businesses on July 1 of 1945. The group operated under the cover of a fake charity supposedly dedicated to the relief of European Jews called the Sonneborn Institute, also known euphemistically as Materials for Israel. This separate legal entity gave the Jewish agency and the Haganah their letter of mark and operational plausible deniability if any of the autonomous cells of the arms smuggling operation were uncovered. Some were, but overall, it worked. Rabbi Irving Miller was instrumental in coordinating higher level issues concerning arms smuggling and finance, even as he served as the chairman of the Jewish Agency American Section. According to Teddy Kollek, a Haganah and Jewish Agency operative based in New York who later became mayor of Jerusalem, Miller went on to chair the American Zionist Committee. Kollek described his own hands-on role, coordinating a wide spectrum of agents and rogues. He said, My work touched on weapons production, speculations on ship purchases, dealings with factories and junkyards, liaison with spies, mobsters, movie moguls, statesmen, bankers, professors, industrialists, and newspapermen, and no lack of illegalities from petty to international. Deals were made with South American governments to buy tanks and innumerable other things and ship them on to Palestine. Kalik cohort Yehuda Arazi, an arms smuggler active in European-Palestinian arms smuggling since 1938, had contacts in Poland. Another associate, Leonard Wiseman, was a scrap machinery magnate with numerous trading and development companies. Another note of the smuggling network, Sam Sloan, continuously scanned War Assets Administration lists for war material for desirable arms. By studying how weapons were rendered inoperable at War Asset Administration facilities, a highly non standardized process. Sloan was able to acquire and assemble fully operational arms with components purchased or stolen from different scrap facilities. Haganah operative Eli Shalit of New York was responsible for clandestine shipments from shell companies set up by Nehum A. Bernstein, a lawyer and founder of Americans for Haganah. The litany of nonprofit corporations used as fronts for the actual arms smuggling included Materials for Palestine a warehouse front for illicit goods and itself an umbrella organization for the nondescript Eastern Development Corporation, which exported machinery, and Inland Machinery and Metal Company, which exported weapons components and weapons-making equipment disguised as civilian machine tools. Ovid Trading, a mining operations exporter, provided cover for buying and shipping explosives. Yet another front, Land and Labor for Palestine, chartered as a youth group, recruited World War II combat veterans to fight in Palestine. One Haganah arms theft operation involved the scrapyard of Nathan Liff, who had acquired a War Assets Administration contract for scrapping surplus arms in Honolulu. Liv notified Sonneborn about his scrapyard and access to surplus warplanes during a visit to New York. Al Schwimmer was a wartime TWA flight engineer who worked in an aircraft reconditioning and air freight business in Burbank, California, refitting C-46 and Constellation transports as well as B-17 flying fortresses for shipment to Palestine. Schwimmer sent Haganah West Coast Coordinator Hank Greenspun to Hawaii to look over Lyft's inventory and, if possible, procure functioning surplus aircraft engines. Greenspun noticed brand new crated 30 and 50 caliber machine guns in a section of the yard with other stock that had not been rendered inoperable. The crates were still owned by the military and actively patrolled by U.S. Marines. Greenspun observed the sentries' timetable and then used a forklift to steal 58 crates containing 500 machine guns. He replaced the new stock with crates of guns already rendered inoperable from Lyft's side of the yard. Greenspan then sent them to Los Angeles for transshipment to Palestine via Mexico. He almost lost the 35 tons of machine guns just out of San Pedro Harbor while employing civilian yachts for the Los Angeles to Acapulco leg of the smuggling operation. But the machine guns arrived in Israel by October of 1948. Kalik also established front operations with Latin American dictators, including Anastasio Somoza, to buy operable War Assets Administration stock for reshipment to Palestine in exchange for a 3.5% kickback on the purchase. Haganah operatives coordinated with gangster boss Sam Kay to traffic arms through Cuba and Panama. Schwimmer used Panama as a base to avoid Civil Aeronautics Administration airworthiness requirements and escape the FBI. The FBI prevented Schwimmer from acquiring U.S. licenses to operate a fleet of military transports made up of 12 C-46 Commando aircraft and three Lockheed Constellations. Schwimmer transferred legal ownership of the aircraft to the Panamanian national airline LAPSA and flew the wing to Panama and then on to Czechoslovakia in May of 1948. From there, the planes ferried disassembled surplus Messerschmitt BF-109 fighter planes and other arms produced in Czechoslovakia to Palestine to fight the Arabs upon the declaration of the state of Israel. The Haganah also acquired B-17 bombers in the U.S. through a front company and illegally flew them to Palestine after stealing one back that had been impounded by U.S. government officials at an air base in Tulsa, Oklahoma. They bombed Cairo on the way to Palestine and operated against Arab ground forces in 1948. The CIA detected the smuggling operations centered on the Czechoslovakian air base of Zatek. Schwimmer's new Service Airways, denied U.S. licenses for his fleet in America, was operating the planes through countries allied with the U.S., His crews wore U.S. military uniforms to deceive foreign airport officials in one of the first of many documented Israeli false flag operations. The U.S. Central Intelligence Agency filed a top-secret report with the Secretary of Defense on May 28, 1948, titled Clandestine Air Transportation Operations. R.H. Hillencotter, Rear Admiral of the U.S. Navy and Director of Central Intelligence, indicated in a report cover letter a new danger to U.S. interests in Europe and the Middle East. U.S. national security is unfavorably affected by these developments, and it could be seriously jeopardized by continued illicit traffic in the implements of war. The report, declassified and released on September 21, 2001, detailed Schwimmer's false flag operations with with the C-46 commandos and the obliquely named Service Airways. The history of a single operation undertaken by an aircraft owned by Service Airways is here cited as typical of the traffic, which has now grown to large proportions. A C-46 air transport carrying a Jewish-American crew departed from the U.S. for Italy early in March 1948. The crew obtained clearance for the aircraft and U.S. visas for themselves by false statements and the exhibition of letters from their company. This correspondence implied that a contract existed for an Italian aircraft manufacturing concern for the conversion of several aircraft from cargo to passenger accommodation. The aircraft took off from a New Jersey airport and was next reported at Geneva, Switzerland, having flown the route by way of Greenland, Iceland, and France. The crew, dressed in U.S. Army uniforms without insignia, permitted only the Swiss airport superintendent to board the plane. Secrecy evidenced by the crew and the fact that they were wearing uniform caused the Swiss official to believe that this was a U.S. Air Force operation, and no inquiry was made other than to learn that the aircraft's next destination was Rome. The Swiss official reported seeing cargo of small arms and commented on the unusually large number of crew members. Taking off from Geneva on 11 March with a full load of gas, the aircraft proceeded to land at Castiglione del Largo near Perugia, Italy. Its arrival was evidently anticipated by Italian customs officials who were dispatched to the airfield. They stated later that flight clearances, and all documents for the aircraft, were in order. No report was made of the cargo, although the aircraft was later seen to have been unloaded. The aircraft eventually took off without clearance for Catania, Sicily, where on arrival the crew declared their intention to return to Castiglione del Largo. Instead, having left behind certain members of the crew, the aircraft took off for Paris, where it was last seen on 6 May, at Orleyfield. Field. No modification of the aircraft, it is now learned, was undertaken by the Italian concern, Societa Aeronautica Italiana, This company, furthermore, denies that any contract exists between the owners of the aircraft for such work. Orders have been issued by the Italian authorities to impound the aircraft involved in this incident, should it return to Italian territory. The Italian government apparently has cooperated with Service Airways, believing it to be engaged in bona fide operations. The behavior of minor Italian officials, however, in failing to report the C-46 incident to American authorities in Italy and in apparently expediting the aircraft's movements, indicated that the cargo of arms probably was unloaded and disposed of with their knowledge and collusion. Since this operation took place prior to the Italian elections, it was suspected at first that its purpose was to aid the communists. Sufficient evidence is now available, however, to attribute the activities of the crew of this aircraft to illegal traffic in arms for the Jewish underground. Two crew members of this aircraft, who, with some others, did not accompany the aircraft to Paris, were later held in custody by Greek police, having landed at Rhodes for gasoline. These men were cooperating with British pilots engaged in flying four Anson aircraft to Palestine to join the nucleus of the Zionist Air Force, read the report. An annex to the CIA report on false flag arms smuggling, labeled Example B, detailed the offshore arm smuggling operations of Ocean Trade Airways out of North Carolina. Ocean Trade Airways, Inc. This irregular carrier operates from an airfield in the Larenburg, Maxson, North Carolina, about 25 miles from Pope Field, a U.S. Air Force base. Ralph Cox of New York, owner of the airline, and most of the operating personnel, are employed by American Airlines on a part-time basis. When working for Ocean Trade Airways, crews wear American Airlines uniforms, with the company Insignia removed. The airline apparently has a heavy schedule of commitments and is flying DC-3s as well as C-54s on missions to South America and Europe. A C-54 transport plane, owned by the company, landed with an American crew at Prague, Czechoslovakia on 31 March was immediately surrounded and isolated by Czechoslovak security police and 35 cases, weighing a total of 14,000 pounds, were loaded onto the aircraft from two large trucks. The plane took off immediately without obtaining the necessary clearances from airport officials. Their protests, however, were overruled by the chief of security police, who stated that this was a government operation. The aircraft returned the following days and the pilot and crew were interrogated at the U.S. Embassy. In a sworn statement, Seymour Lerner admitted being in charge of the flight and revealed that Ralph Cox of New York owns and operates a charter airplane service under the name Ocean Trade Airways. The plane was chartered in Paris by Lerner to a British subject named Cooper, without the knowledge but under the authority given by Cox and Lerner to carry freight while in Europe to various destinations. The pilot stated his cargo to have been hand tools and surgical instruments, which he flew in a nonstop flight to Bet Dara, Palestine. Israel's growth into a regional military hegemon counted on such smuggling, clandestine international coordination, and the cover by many organizations claiming to be charities. The public relations, fundraising, and lobbying activity that made much of it possible is most effectively observed at the level of a single individual. Tracing Isaiah L. Kennan's public and private activities as he transcended obstacles utilizing ever-morphing lobbying groups while dodging government prosecutions provides one illuminating path through a murky history.